Well, today I'm going to start a new series called Sermons from the Summer. Sermons from the Summer. There were things that I observed uh, this summer, uh, read, and even had questions and comments about around the fireplaces. Comments that came from adults, comments that came from kids, questions that arised, and so on. And so today, I thought I would address one of the things that uh, came up this summer. What does the Bible say about tattoos? Now some might ask, why would we spend any time preaching on this? Does this really matter? Well, let me answer you that question with a story. It actually fits because John and Charlene are on Zoom today, but it happened to John and his church. About eight years ago, he was pastoring uh, the church in Inniskillen. A worship leader at the time had a full sleeve of tattoos. One particular Sunday, a gentleman who was visiting went up to the worship leader and said, I cannot believe you are leading worship here when you're covered in tattoos like that. The Bible is very clear that that's ungodly. He then went up to John and said, are you really happy to have a guy like that leading worship in your church who looks this way? John responded to him in basically the same way I'm going to respond to you this morning. And the guy was not very happy. Now, as I told that story, some of you listening actually may identify with the gentleman's sentiment more than the worship leader's. On the other side, some of you will identify more with the worship leader than the gentleman. And this is why it's important. These are the kind of issues that divide the churches. I was, remember listening to um, a pastor that, uh, like years ago, and he made something, he made a very profound statement. He said, isn't it interesting in the New Testament that when Paul or Peter address the churches in their letters, there's always two overwhelming issues. The number one issue is always doctrine, always doctrine, and all the books always start off with doctrinal statements about who they are in Jesus, about salvation. But then the letters always move into relationships with one another in the community. How to get along. <laughs> Think about it. Every New Testament book, it's a, it's a theological statement about who you are in Christ, what he's done for you, and then it's about the how does that impact how you live with one another. And in those days, the churches were divided over relational issues, preferences in the community, because as a Jew, you had a particular way of honoring God with your life. As a Gentile, you had a completely different set of standards in honoring God with your life. And so a Jew and a Gentile in the community created a lot of tension. And so there's lots of infighting, and Paul and Peter and the guys had to always teach them, here's what you need to do in order to get along. Tattoos is one of those issues in the Christian church, along with music and uh, alcohol and playing cards, dancing, all these things. They're all in the same category. And so we need to know how to biblically walk through this if we're going to follow through on the sermon I preached last week about unity. Unity. We need to know how to respond. Another reason why we need to talk about this is because of parenting. Roger did a sermon, uh, I think, three weeks ago or so on parenting. Well, we need to help our kids walk through this biblically. 
Because when they're 17 years old and they come to you or 16 and say, I want a tattoo, and you just say, well, you can't because the Bible says so, you better be, make sure you can back that up biblically. Or if they're going to say, I want one, you have to be able to answer them, walk them through biblically as to why they should or shouldn't get one. And so I actually think these kind of issues are super important because, again, what divided the churches back then was not just doctrinal issues, it was relational issues, and if we don't get this right, we will hurt one another and, and actually destroy the very thing I preached about last week. So let's go through it. I'm going to give you three questions to answer on this outline. Where in the Bible is the prohibition against tattoos? Does the command still apply to us today? And how are we to respond in love? These are the three questions we're going to answer. So where in the Bible is the prohibition against tattoos? Let's look at chapter uh, Leviticus 19 and verse 28. You shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. It's interesting that in the Bible, this is the only verse that speaks to tattoos directly. So let's work through it a bit. What I really think is going on here is that God is speaking against the common worship practices of the pagan nation that existed in Israel's day. This is a cultural issue in a cultural context. God was speaking against the common worship practices of the pagan nations that existed in Israel's day. And we really picked this up in 18, 1 to 3. Look at this with me. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you, and you shall not walk in their statutes. Instead, he says, you are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accordance with them. I am the Lord your God. So right off the cuff in chapter 18, he says, all the laws that I'm going to give you now, they're in response to what it's like to live in opposition to the pagan nations around you. So when you read the list of laws in chapter 18 and 19 and forward, these are laws that, or these are the ways in which the pagan nations lived. So when you read them, you think, oh, they must have done the opposite. Oh, they would have done the opposite. And so clearly tattoos was something that the pagan nations around Israel were known for. That's what they were known for. And God said, I want to speak um, in opposition to this and give you a different way of life and living for me based on the, the, the context in which you live. Now, uh, that's like, again, super, super important. But there was more than just tattoos that were associated with the pagan nations. I think these verses all belong together. Look at uh, verse 27, for example. You shall not round off, or actually we'll go to 26. You shall not eat anything with the blood, nor practice divination or soothsaying. You shall not round off the side growth of your heads, nor harm the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo. So there's a list of prohibitions that these all, these all fall into. And these are clearly practices associated with the Gentile nations around them. And so can we find Old Testament text to support this is what's going on 
And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. The Phoenicians, for example, were a people known for cutting themselves and divination and so on and so forth. This, you can find this in chapter uh, uh, 1 Kings 16. But really in 1 Kings 16, uh, there's a king of Israel named Ahab. He marries the daughter of the Phoenician king named Jezebel. Now just so you know, Phoenicia is north of Israel. It's modern day Lebanon and Syria, that kind of area. So Phoenicia then is Syria, Lebanon, or Lebanon, Syria today. So Israel makes a pact with Phoenicia. And the way you make the pact between two kings when the neighboring borders is you get the daughter involved and you marry her. Well, Ahab married the famous Jezebel. The famous Jezebel. And her presence in Israel solidified and sanctioned the worship of Baal, or Baal, however you want to say it. Now, how they expressed their worship to Baal is found in 1 Kings 18. And you'll know this um, really well. This is when Elijah goes to task um, against the 450 prophets of Baal. And Israel's divided, right? They're worshiping Baal, you know, and they're worshiping God, and they're worshiping both gods, and they're obviously completely opposite to one another, what that looked like in terms of what was demanded of your life. And so there's going to be a contest between Elijah as a prophet and Baal's prophets as to who truly is God to win the hearts of Israel to faithfulness back to God. And so what happens is, um, you know, they create this altar, and they you know, pour water around it and they call down fire. And what happens is Israel or um, the, the uh, Baal's prophets basically are calling out to Baal and nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. Uh, of course, it's not happening because Baal is not a real God. He's a, he's a made up figure. But here's the key verse in verse 28. It says that they, they cut themselves according to their custom until the blood gushed out of them. So to try to invoke Baal or Baal to act on their behalf, they start cutting themselves, believing the blood offering was going to invoke God to hear their cries and to act. And so we look in Leviticus, he says, you shall not um, cut yourselves on your body. You shall not cut yourselves on the body. And this is the practice of the Phoenicians. The Canaanites are also known for this. In Judges chapter 2.11, it says there that Israel served the Baals. Well, if Israel is serving the balls back in Judges, that means that these kind of practices were associated with this, the cutting and so on. Therefore, we can see that t tattoos would have been part of that custom as well as cutting themselves. That's what it would have been to worship in those times. Now, there's one other feature, though, I think is important, and is that he, he noticed that there's this comment about the dead. There's a tattoos are associated here in Leviticus 19.28 with the dead. It says, you shall not make any cuts in the body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourself. Now, it's hard to know for sure if they're two separate things or they're in relation to one another. But because of the word order, it seems like tattoos are also part of what it was to worship the dead. So perhaps in that day... Um, a loved one dies, and so what you do is you get a tattoo, maybe with the God, with the God of the day on your arm, and, and maybe a date, and, you're, and you look at that and you think, it's a reminder for that God to take care of your loved one, or whatever. And so that could have been something maybe that was going on, I don't know, I'm just suggesting that. But again, this is really important, 
And so they're getting tattoos to really uh, associate with the pagan deities and so on and remembering the dead. Uh, we do know that Israel, for example, embraced cutting practices um, when they had their dead um, remembered. So look at uh, verse 16, or Jeremiah 16, 6. It says that Israel, in the terms of Israel, both great men and small will die in this land, God says. They will not be buried, they will not be lamented, nor will anyone gash himself or shave his head for them. So again, um, Jeremiah is prophesying that Israel, who's adopted the pagan ways of the land, are basically going to um, get taken out by Babylon and so on. And look at the practices they're going to do. He says, you're not going to gash yourself or shave your head for them like the pagan gods do. Because they'd already embraced these things. It was part of their practices as an Israelite. And they'd adopted it from the pagan nations. So again, because cutting and shaving is something they did with the dead, we can also probably include tattoos in association with this. Now, we've been to enough funerals to see that people do all sorts of superstitious things around those events, believing that there's going to be power in what they do in those rituals around the, the protection or placement of their loved ones in eternal life, right? We see sprinklings and the arranging of certain things and certain special gloves are worn and all sorts of stuff. So it's not unusual for humans to do all sorts of weird things uh, when it comes to funerals and remembering the dead. So how does this apply to us today? Does it apply to us today? Why or why not? The quick answer is it doesn't apply to us today. The Old Testament law was never intended for all people and for all time. I'll say that again. The Old Testament law was never intended for every nation and for, and for eternity as we know it. It was given for a specific people group for a limited time period, and that was the nation of Israel. And there's two key texts you need to know in understanding this. The first one is Matthew 5. Jesus is speaking about the law, and Jesus says this in Matthew 5.17. Do not think I, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not a, the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now this is really, really important. There are many splinter groups within Christianity or Christians that say we are to obey the law today because Jesus said... In Matthew 5, not the smallest letter nor the least of a pen will ever disappear. But they forget the last phrase, until everything is accomplished. In other words, the law is in place, Jesus says, until I accomplish something. Once I accomplish something, the law is no longer in place. So what, did he have to, what was the accomplishment that Jesus accomplished? His death and resurrection. That's why he says and when he dies, it is finished. It is finished. The death and resurrection accomplished everything then. So therefore, the law now was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, there's a really key text that proves that that's what Jesus was referring to in Acts 15. Because we see Jesus' apostles in action. 
And I want you to listen to what they say in relation to the law. So context-wise, actually, let's, uh, let's turn there in Acts 15. Acts 15, we'll turn as a church. We're going to focus in in a minute on verse 5. But for now, let me give you the rundown of what's happening. Acts 15, we're going to focus in on verse 5 in a second. The gospel has spread. Pentecost has come. The Jews in Israel have received the gospel, and Christianity is exploding. It moves now outside of Israel into the Gentile nations around them, the, the world around the Mediterranean. In Acts 15, we, we come to this city, the city of Antioch, and a major event takes place. The, the, the Antioch, by the way, to the Gentiles was what Jerusalem was to the Jews. Jerusalem was the hub of Christianity for Jewish people. Antioch was the hub of Gentile Christianity. So the two major cities had the two major centers for Christianity. So these Jewish missionaries arrive in Antioch. They see the Gentiles and they think it's important that you get circumcised, otherwise you are not saved. In other words, they want the, Gen the Jewish missionaries arrive in Antioch and they believe you need to become more Jewish to be saved and less Gentile. This sparks a huge debate. Paul and Barnabas are there, and they think, we've got to get a council together to discuss this. They head back to Jerusalem. Turns out some of the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders of the day, agreed with these Jewish missionaries. And look at verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Two issues. You need to be circumcised to be saved in Jesus Christ, and you need to be obedient to the law of Moses to be saved in Jesus Christ. Really important, those two issues are mentioned. So what happens? What happens? Well, let's read 6 to 11. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, and by, the mouth, and by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knew the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. How did he cleanse their hearts and give them the Holy Spirit? By works of the law? No, by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Now, listen to what Peter says in verse 10. Now, therefore, why do you then put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? No one's ever been able to follow the law and get right with God. It's impossible. It's, a, it's like a giant yoke, this like heavy weight on our necks. And then he says, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. We as Jews were saved in the same way as Gentiles by faith in Jesus Christ, not by the law. We received the Holy Spirit by faith and not by works of the law. Really, really important. You and I are free from observing the Mosaic law. It's absolutely crystal clear in Acts 15. 
The problem is, many within the Christian circles who believe it's important to observe the law will choose different aspects of it to obey. So I know believers who obey certain feasts and festivals. And they believe it's important in terms of like <clears throat> your relationship with Jesus Christ. You even need to be, do it to be saved and be, have authentic salvation. Certain people believe that it's important to have certain food laws, to observe the Sabbath and make sure you worship on Saturdays and not Sundays. The problem is this. Those who want to substantiate things like no tattoos based on this verse create a real problem for themselves. Because elsewhere in, in the scriptures, James makes this comment. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So if you believe that you need to obey Leviticus 19.28, you better be prepared to embrace the entire Old Testament law, otherwise you're guilty. Now why is that important? Let's look at Leviticus 15, for example, just for fun. Leviticus 15 and verse 19. This is instructions on a woman on her menstrual cycle. This is instructions on a woman on her menstrual cycle. Let's read together, 1519. When a woman has a discharge, if her discharge in her body is blood, she shall continue in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Everything also on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean. Anyone who touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And whatever bed or anything else she's sitting on will be unclean until evening. Here's the thing, guys and girls. Unclean is not sin, by the way. Unclean is not sin. Because God set up the woman to have a menstrual cycle. So it's not sin. Unclean just means that you're not ready to enter into the tabernacle. And there's some ceremonial washings and, and practices you need to do to be fit to enter God's, God's presence. That's it. So imagine then, if you want to hold to tattoos as being your Leviticus 19.28 as, as, as your, as your uh, pinnacle for why you shouldn't get one then you better be prepared to install the menstrual cycle laws in your home as well. James says, if you're going to, you have to keep it all. It's all or nothing. You can't pick and choose. This is really important. Really important. And you know what, school? This has turned into a sermon on the law. But it's really important for us because this kind of stuff divides churches like crazy. Like crazy. Okay, that leads me to the final question. Well then, if tattoos are cultural for Israel's day, and we're not, we're not obligated to the law, what should our response be? What does wisdom and love say about how we're to respond? It's important again because tattoos used to be something that only the hell's angels would wear, or uh, the prisoners that we knew, right? Only those bad guys in, out there. But now they're everywhere, and people, I mean, it's virtually impossible. To, like, actually, I'd say, I'm going to guess maybe 50% or more people today have one. And I know there's lots of people in Genesis House that have one as well. Well, we're going to actually turn to Romans 14 to answer this question. 
Romans 14. So please turn there with me. In our final piece of our sermon today. Let me give you the background, just like I did with Acts 15. When Paul wrote this letter, the church in Rome was like us today. It was made up of a, made up of a real mixed bag of people, with all sorts of different social, cultural, and religious backgrounds. So there were Jewish people there who had placed their faith in Jesus, but had come from a history where observing certain food laws and ceremonial aspects of the law were important. Like certain days were important, certain food laws were important, and so on. But you also had Gentiles there who also had placed their faith in Jesus, but came from a background of loose living and idolatry and had no food laws, and no day was really important to them. This presented a potential division in the church, and the unity was at stake, therefore, as to what were the right faith practices and expressions in terms of living out one's life's devotion to God. Paul knew the tension in this, and so he wrote, wrote to help the believing community in Rome live in unity with one another, and teaching them how to accept one another despite their differences. So that's the background. So let's read verse 1 and 2. And you're going to notice the first principle in terms of tattoos. We're to accept one another's expression of faith despite our personal differences. First teaching to us, accept one another's expression of faith despite the personal differences. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, Paul says, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Notice that Paul tells two different groups of people, the weak, and he's going to actually call the other ones strong, by the way, in 15.1. In 15.1, he calls the other group strong. In 14.1, he calls another group weak. But he tells both the strong and the weak to accept one another. And here's the key phrase, in matters of opinions, not clear-cut sin. So when it comes to clear-cut sin, things like lying, stealing, pride, we're told to confront one another when it comes to issues of sin. When it comes to opinions, though, we're not to confront, but to accept. Accept one another despite our differences. And so the NIV calls these disputable matters. It's hard to determine whether there's a clear-cut right or a clear-cut wrong. My personal word that I use all the time is preferences. These are preferences in how I want to live out my life. Now for the Roman church, the issue was food, food primarily, and of particular religious days. But food is the main issue. And in verse 2, he says, one person has the faith to eat all things, and he who is weak eats vegetables only. Paul's not promoting a vegetarian diet here. He's just saying that there's two expressions here of how people want to live out their life in relation to God. And so the strong person, sorry, the weak person is really this person. They hold to the conviction that something is inappropriate to partake in, even though God would permit it. So God will permit it, but they hold to the conviction that it's inappropriate to partake in. So this is super important um, that we see this. So they're more conservative in their approach to Christianity. The strong person, however, holds the conviction that something is, is appropriate to partake in because God has permitted it. And so therefore, 
there's, there's a more liberal approach to their, their Christianity. And so again, weak, they think, I, I know the Lord will permit, but I can't do this in my own conviction. And the strong, I know the Lord will permit it, so I'm free and I'm going to go ahead and do it. So these are really important. So therefore, in the application of this, those who... Um, well, actually, let me just say one more thing too uh, before I move on. Don't think that weak and strong has anything to do with inferiority or superiority. So when you, in our culture, when you hear the word weak, you think inferior. That is not how Paul is using the word. It has nothing to do with it. In fact, some of the most committed believers in the world who have a, a genuine faith are weak Christians. In terms of they have a conviction something's inappropriate, their conscience won't let them do it. That's it. But they're often the most scrupled people and actually the most, convict, or most uh, um, strong in the Lord. In fact, I, if I were to interview some of you, you would fall probably in both categories. Depending on the issue, you might be strong in one area and weak in the other and vice versa. And so you're not always necessarily going to be strong in every area of Christian life. It really depends. Well, there's a lot that depends on why you would be strong or weak, and we can talk about that in a dialogue. But it has nothing to do with superiority or inferiority. So don't hear that, please, from me. That's not what's being said here. Now, for those then who would be against tattoos, you'd be in the weak category. You hold to the conviction that something is inappropriate to partake in. For those of you who are for tattoos, you'd be in the strong category. You'd hold to the conviction that something is, is appropriate. Because again, we're not under the law anymore. Now, both points are acceptable. And so therefore, Paul says, accept one another. But Paul was no dummy. He recognized that people in their strong convictions have the potential to damage one another with their convictions. And so he gives a warning label to the weak and the strong. There's a warning label to the weak and the strong. And we pick up that in verse 3. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So look at the PowerPoint. What's the warning to the weak? You are not to be judgmental. This is the, the weak person will say something like this to the, so the strong person. You know what? You're so irresponsible. I can't believe you'd get a tattoo. Like, that's not an action of a genuine believer. Why would you mark up the temple of God? <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Why would you do that? So they'd be judgmental of someone who had one. The strong would, have the chance, would actually seek to condemn the other, despise them. Man, you're so self-righteous. You're so uptight. Why don't you just live a little? You're so legalistic, and so on. And so we would hate the other person for their strict rules that they have in terms of how they, would look, how they would express their faith to God. So again, there's this warning to both. There's this warning to both. And what I love about Paul's instruction is this. It doesn't matter what side of the coin you're on in terms of opinions. No one's right and no one's wrong. There was freedom on both sides to express their faith as they saw fit, and they didn't have to conform to one another. Which leads me to the next point. 
Not only are you to accept one another's expression of faith despite personal differences, whether you choose to get a tattoo or not has to do with this. You choose according to your own personal convictions before the Lord. It's about your own relationship with God and how you want to express that. Look at verses 5 through 8. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. I don't know if you noticed this, but the phrase, for the Lord, for the Lord, for the Lord, is repetitive in every, all the time in these verses. You want to get a tattoo? You do it for the Lord. You don't want to get a tattoo? You do it for the Lord. In other words, your decision is about your own personal convictions, about how you want to express your faith to Jesus Christ. And that's between you and him. You and him. It's important about how you feel it is to honor him. Again, two people living in complete opposition to one another in Rome, in terms of food and in terms of observances of days. And yet both of them, Paul says, are honoring Jesus Christ in the way they're living. Again, we're not talking sin issues. We're talking opinions, things that aren't laid out in Scripture as clear, right, and wrong. And that's the key. I mean, if you can circle anything in 14, it's circle opinions or disputable matters. These are not clear-cut sin issues. They're difficult to figure out in the Christian community, and we have lots of them. Every culture has different ones, by the way, depending on their background. One more principle, and we'll finish. We need to be sensitive to our audience. Be sensitive to your audience in terms of whether you're going to show your tattoos or not. I'm going to finish with 1 Corinthians 9, and we're going to read this. I chose the NLT because NLT does sometimes the best job of being really clear in layman's terms. Paul says this, Even though I'm a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew, i.e., I ate their food and I observed their days, right? I dressed in their clothing, whatever. I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under the law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, Acts 15, I did this so I could bring them to Christ, those who are under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles, though, who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so that I can bring them to Christ. So I eat food that Gentiles eat. I change my, my way of life around them. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ, which is love. The law of Christ is love. The New Testament makes that clear. When I am with those who are weak, I share in their weaknesses. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. So, I have a tattoo of the Lion of Judah on my arm, and I love that because it reminds me about who Christ is to me in terms of being my rock and my savior. 
and I preached in Revelation, so that really means something to me now, more than ever before, and so on. But then um, my grandmother invites me over to the house, and uh, I know she hates tattoos. I'm probably just going to wear a long sleeve shirt that day when I go visit Grandma. Because what's the point of like creating an issue with Grandma? I'm going to live like she lives because I love her. And that is my main goal. If I go to John's church in Ireland one day, that's a prophecy, that's a declaration. <laughs> I'm going to, when I go there one day, and hopefully you'll be with me when we go, if I had a tattoo, I wouldn't feel the need to cover it. Because John has tattoos, and so they accept him and they trust him as a leader, and so I would go there freely with a short sleeve shirt. If I was going into another culture where I didn't know the people and I didn't know the context, I'd probably wear something just to make sure, because I don't know what I'm dealing with when I'm there. I'm using love and wisdom to determine my actions, and I'm determining that I'm going to be sensitive to my audience, not knowing how everyone thinks. Again, all, however, in those contexts, if I do get exposed and someone sees it, and they're Christian especially, the Lord would tell them, you're to accept Andrew anyway, despite your personal preferences. So the onus would then be on them for accepting me. But I would do everything in my power to be acceptable to them. Okay? So, three lessons I think are important. The Old Testament prohibition against tattoos is not applicable to New Testament believers today. If you're going to obey that law, you better embrace every single law. James 2.10 makes that very clear. You can't pick and choose from the law. You have to embrace it all or none of it. Okay? The Old Testament is, a gain, is not applicable to us. Acts 15 is the bomb. Absolute bomb. We believe you need to be circumcised and observe the law of Moses to be saved. Paul says, why would you put a yoke on those Gentiles that even Jews can't even bear? Number two, in order for unity to be maintained within Genesis House, there must be an allowance for each individual within our church to express their decisions regarding tattoos without judgment or contempt. And again, the weak person is going to judge and the strong person is going to condemn and despise. Number three, the motivating factor behind each of our decisions in regards to tattoos must be our own personal relationship with Jesus Christ and how we choose to honor him. Can we do something as a church before we close? Uh, you're kind of in little pockets. There's no obligation for you to, to participate, but we'd love you to participate can we get into little groups for prayer? And we'll finish this way our service. And I'll do two things. Um, bring anything personal to the table that you're suffering with or dealing with, whether it be physical ailments or emotional stresses. But maybe even bring something forward from the message. There's no way this that the Lord didn't speak to you today about something about your, about like, you know, made you think about something. Maybe it's in relation to the law or maybe how you, identify with being weak or strong and how that may impact the way you treat others. But let's have a time of prayer in small groups. And so actually, like, maybe just this section together, this section together, and maybe we can divide into maybe two, two or three here. And again, you're not obligated to pray, but just bring things before the Lord and uh, maybe we'll pray for about 10 minutes together and we'll end this way. Does that work?